Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. There's no question in our minds that we would get married. Yeah, we'd been together for 17 years at that point. We'd been living as married, but we'd never had a ceremony. We'd never exchanged vows. And suddenly, this was our time. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. This summer, we're changing things up a bit at Life of the Law. We're presenting some amazing audio documentaries produced at universities and colleges around the country. Our first story is from Aviva de Kornfeld of Pitzer College in Southern California. Aviva was curious about marriage. Marrying the person you love is the ideal, right? But what happens when you find your mate, your dream, your love, and you get married, but then a few months later, the government tells you, never mind, your marriage doesn't count. Aviva has the story. My mom loves to tell the story about how one morning we were driving to preschool when she heard me sigh from my booster seat in the back and say, when am I going to get married? I actually remember doing this as a three-year-old. And when my mom reminded me of my age and said I could get married when I was older, I remember having the three-year-old version of the thought, well, that seems very ageist. I couldn't be bothered waiting, and so I soon tied the knot with Rafi Karpuzian under the slide at recess. Rafi and I stayed together until fifth grade when we went to different middle schools, and that's still my longest relationship to date. This is a story about a group of people who felt the same impatience I did. This is about how one foggy February morning, hundreds of couples didn't let their moms or anyone else stop them from getting married. It's important, I guess, to set a little context, so let me do that first. So this is January 2, 2004. We have a war in Iraq. George W. Bush is the president. This is Kate Kendall, the uh, executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights in San Francisco. In June of 2003, the court struck down uh, the remaining laws that criminalized same-sex sexual intimacy. So we weren't criminals anymore for having sex with each other. And then in November, we won marriage in Massachusetts. So 2003 really was an important high watermark for the LGBT community. So then 2004, George W. Bush gives his State of the Union in January, and he endorses the idea of a federal constitutional amendment to ban marriage between same-sex couples. On an issue of such great consequence, the people's voice must be heard. If judges insist on forcing their arbitrary will upon the people, the only alternative left to the people would be the constitutional process. Our nation must defend the sanctity of marriage. Sitting in the audience during the State of the Union address was the new mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom. And immediately following the address, like seconds after the address ended, he went outside, called his staff, and said, I want to do something about this for same-sex couples, what can we do? And they came up with the idea of him issuing an edict that San Francisco would begin marrying same-sex couples. So his chief of staff, Steve Kava, called me and said, Kate, on Monday the mayor's going to begin issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. And my initial reaction was not, oh, wow, that's awesome, we'll be there with, you know, flowers and cake. 
And I was just worried about what the backlash might be to the mayor doing that. But by Sunday, I had totally done a 180 and was pretty much, I remember actually driving along in the car thinking, you know what? Game on. I mean, let's, let's do this. Now, it should be noted that Gavin Newsom had only been elected one month before this, and he had won by a narrow margin. And Newsom is a straight, Irish Catholic, centrist Democrat, needless to say, an unlikely hero of the gay rights movement. So I think he surprised nearly everyone when he decided to put his relatively young political career on the line in order to not only support same-sex marriage, but make a very public showing of his dedication to gay rights. Mayor Newsom didn't end up issuing licenses that Monday. Instead, Kate met with his staff and coached them on how to prepare the mayor. I suggested that Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon be the first couple. And everybody, of course, said, that's fabulous. Why did you suggest them? Because they are probably the most iconic and important LGBT people living in San Francisco. They founded the first lesbian organization, the Daughters of Belitis, back in the 1950s. Very courageous thing to do back then. What was the conversation like between you and Phyllis and Adele? Well, it was hilarious. They had never been proponents of marriage because, you know, they're old line feminists, right? And so they were like, marriage is aping the patriarchy and why would we do that? But they understood that it branded us as inferior to not be able to marry. And so I remember vividly calling them. Phyllis answered the phone and I said, I have one more thing that I need you to do for the movement. And Phyllis said, oh, really, what's that? And I said, I want to know if you'll be the first couple married in San Francisco by Mayor Newsom on Thursday. And she said, well, let me ask Dale. (laughs) And so I hear her talking in the background. And she comes back really just two minutes later and says, we'll do it. And so it wasn't particularly romantic, uh, but it it was just vintage Dale and Phyllis. What was it like to watch them get married? It was electrifying. My heart was beating out of my chest. I mean, we knew we were doing something transgressive in the sense that the mayor wasn't supposed to probably be doing this, but it started to really sink in. Whoa, holy shit, we are doing a really huge thing here. After more than 50 years together, Dell and Phyllis got married at 11 in the morning on February 12th, 2004, which, not coincidentally, was uh, National Freedom to Marry Day. And on that day, couples would go to clerk's offices and ask for marriage licenses and traditionally inevitably be turned down. John Lewis is a gay rights activist and attorney and half of one of the first couples to get married in 2004. It's a dehumanizing experience to stand there and, and just say, no, you can't get married. But it would be an opportunity to present a real human experience of a denial of your constitutional rights because you would stand in the discrimination. Stuart Gaffney is John's husband. He says it's surprising how emotional the whole process was. Even knowing that you're going to be turned down, when you're told no and you're standing there with the love of your life, 
it's just so personal. <laughs> it not only shows the rest of the world, you know, what the discrimination looks like, but you feel that so intimately. And you also feel the arbitrariness because sometimes when we would go to the marriage counter, we would, if we were there with two women doing the same thing, we would sometimes offer to the clerk, it said, well, what if we switch partners? So I'm here with the man I love and that I'm spending the rest of my life with, and you say we can't get married. But what if I say instead I would like to marry this person who's a relative stranger to me that I don't love, that I don't want to spend the rest of my life with, but she happens to be a woman. And then the clerk will say, yeah, sure, just pay the fee and you can get married right now. In most California counties, the county clerk would hide in his or her office on that day. Freddie Oakley was a clerk for Yolo County in California. And I thought that was just wrong, so I decided I was going to do the ugly job. And it turned out to be so much more heartbreaking than I ever expected it to be. It was horrible to stand there and to tell people that, no, you're a sub-citizen, you may not become married. So Freddie did something different. I started issuing something I called certificates of inequality. When I couldn't give people a license to marry, instead I would give them this beautifully prepared signed certificate that said, because some people don't like the way you live, I can't give you a marriage license. Freddie paid for these herself and printed hundreds of them. One year, she also donated to an organization called Marriage Equality USA for every couple she had to deny. Another year, she offered couples an IOU. To be silent in the face of discrimination is extremely painful. I mean, I'm a serious-minded Christian woman, and, and, you know, I study theology and I think about this stuff, and I'm absolutely persuaded that discrimination was never part of Jesus' plan. On that Thursday morning in February 2004, as Phyllis and Dell were getting married, John joined other Freedom to Marry protesters on the steps of City Hall. That's where he spotted the then head of the advocacy group Marriage Equality, Molly McKay. He walked up to her and said, Hi, I'm here for the rally. What's the, uh, what's the plan? And she just said, you could go right in City Hall and get married right now. And I was just like, what? I was, yeah, flabbergasted, astonished. Um, and I was like freaking panicking because I don't have my husband, my fiance, my husband to be. Uh, and I didn't own a cell phone. Luckily, Molly did. So uh, Molly said, here, you can use my cell phone. And I was just like, how does it work? What do you do? What do you do? <laughs> then, uh, eventually, uh, she or somebody else said that they would, if I gave them the phone number, they would punch it in for me. And so they did, and uh, I got Stuart on the line. It was the most urgent wedding proposal ever. <laughs> it was like, get to City Hall right now! <laughs> There's no question in our minds that we would get married. Yeah, we'd been together for 17 years at that point. We'd been living as married, but we'd never had a ceremony. We'd never exchanged vows. 
and suddenly this was our time. And uh, anyway, so I jumped up. I actually didn't even tell my coworkers where I was going. I just ran out of the office. And I got to City Hall as quickly as I could. And there was John, uh, sort of the nervous groom, almost like pacing back and forth, like, where's my groom to be? And then uh, we ran through the doors of City Hall. And then it was one of these interesting moments where I realized we'd gone to so many other people's weddings. But we actually, because it seemed that marriage was always going to be for someone else and never for us. We were not aware of the literal mechanics. Well, how do you get married? So we went through the metal detectors inside the door of City Hall, and then we looked at each other like, what do we do now? Where do we go? (laughs) How do you get married? Um, So we asked the security guard, and he um, kind of rolled his eyes, and he said, do you see where that CNN crew is heading? That's where you're getting married. (laughs) John and Stuart stood in line. They filled out their paperwork. But then the clerk asked for the form back. We knew that people must be in court right now trying to stop these marriages. So the idea that they would ask for the forms back, it was like, well, this is creating more delay. I mean, what if we miss our chance? The clerk explained that bride and groom have legal definitions. So they had to redo the forms to say party A and party B. I remember very vividly when the clerk... uh, said I need the form back and I just remember grasping a hold of it so tightly and thinking I I don't know if I'm going to give it you back you know um, um, and just saying so you don't know how long we have waited for something like this you just don't know when we got the form in this just most bureaucratic, deadpan manner, she handed us the pregnancy and family planning information. And it was just hysterical, you know. Um, at the same time, it felt really, really great. She is treating us just like everybody else. No better, no worse, same bureaucratic treatment. And so we redid the form, and we paid our fee, and there were a group of city officials and workers who had volunteered and been trained as officiants. And it was a little bit like gym class, where like the couples lined up on one side of the room, and the officiants lined up on the other side, and then they're like, okay, pair off. (laughs) Each couple find an officiant, go get married. And I remember our officiant was Craig Ziedzik. He was a little nervous himself. He said, you know, I have to say, guys, I'm going to do the best I can, but this is my first time. And we said, you know what? It's our first time, too. (laughs) So no worries. We're all in this together. Many people are nervous on their wedding day. (laughs) But in a sense, I felt butterflies for a different reason. I mean, these were like history-making marriages, and there we were. My name is Shelley Bales. I've been married twice. The first time was on February 12th, right? (laughs) God, 2004. And the second time was uh, June 16th, 2008. What a coincidence. (laughs) You know, I'm Ellen Pontek, and I got married at exactly the same times. It's it's just incredible. While Stuart and John were getting married, Shelley and Ellen were busy planning a gay rights rally in Sacramento for the following Saturday. They had the radio on while they worked, when they heard that Gavin Newsom had issued a marriage license for Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin. 
said, something's going on in San Francisco. We should really go see what's happening. This was about, I think, 1.30. And so we changed our jeans. We put on clean jeans. <laughs> and uh, we got in the car. And I don't know how I made it, but I made it into San Francisco in about an hour. And we get into fr- the front of uh, City Hall, and just right the first parking space in front of City Hall had a, a covered meter on it. Yeah, and it, Like a paper bag. Yeah. Because yeah, the meter was a broken. broken meter. And there was a space. And I went, whoa. <laughs> and I pulled into that space. And we ran into City Hall, and all our friends were standing there. And they had all gotten married. And they said, oh, oh are you guys getting married? We both looked at each other and we said, I guess, I guess so. <laughs> That's what we said. We had no plans of getting married yeah, it, or anything. It, it just never, never crossed our minds. Right. So there was really no discussion about whether no. or not you'd get married. No, no, no. It was just an impossibility. We had no idea what was going on. Maybe only Phyllis and Dell were allowed yeah. to get married. We didn't know that he opened it up to other people. We had no idea. No. We just went there to, to find out what was going on. Yeah. You know, we had to walk down the hall and go to the office, and we got our little number, and we were number 45. And Ellen looks at me, and she said, the camera's in the car. I forgot the camera. I gotta, I have to go get the camera. And with that, she leaves, and she disappears. And, of course, I'm holding the number, and I'm standing there all by myself. And the woman says, number 45. <laughs> and I go, oh, shit. <laughs> And so these two uh, men were sitting on on the bench, and they saw what happened, and they said, you know, I have number 54 or something. Why don't we switch numbers, and and I'll go in. I said, I've been waiting 34 years for this number. I'm not giving it up. And with that, Ellen came running down with with the camera and stuff, and so we filled out the paperwork, and uh, Mark Leno married us. You know, I would say it was a dream come true, except we never had that dream. Gay rights activist Tori Osborne heard about the mayor's decision on the news. I mean, everybody on the planet, at least in California, knew that he was giving out licenses. The kind of magnetic attraction to San Francisco to be part of this was huge. Tori lives in Los Angeles, and a few weeks after Phyllis and Dell married, Tori and her partner of five years, Lydia, boarded an airplane for San Francisco, along with several other gay couples and friends. There were 17 people in our party on Southwest Airlines at 7 a.m. flight flying to San Francisco. And the, the entire plane, commuter plane, mostly, of course, straight, started singing with this wedding party. We're getting married in the morning. The entire plane, the pilot got on the intercom, congratulated us. It was one of the most wonderful experiences. And the whole day was like that. It was magic. This city was electric. It was just fantastic. At that moment, what San Francisco City Hall symbolized to the rest of the world, it was just a beacon of hope. And there was this famous effort where these folks in the Midwest raised money. And called up a florist and said, I want you to deliver flowers to as many people as there are there. And so that anybody that would want a bouquet of flowers would have it. And trucks, literally uh, cars full of bouquets of flowers would pull up. And he paid, this guy paid for it all. And we heard all this honking. And then I turned around. And it was a taxi cab that had a big sign, and it said, free rides for newlyweds. 
pizza places would pull up with loads of pizza pies in, in the back of their cars because people were just, you know, in line. They were hungry and everything. And I actually saw these two men, and they had a couple of kids, and one of the men uh, said, my kids are starving, here's $20 for the pizza. And the guy said, we're not taking money today. One time, a car pulled up outside City Hall, and a baker got out with a giant wedding cake. And he just walked up to the doors of City Hall, and he started slicing it. And as newlyweds came out the door, just having exchanged vows, he would hand them a slice of cake. I want to tell you that for me, to go inside City Hall, not a hundred yards from where Harvey Milk was assassinated, where I had yelled in protest and cried in pain to be married in City Hall and to get a, a license. It was when I realized what a revolutionary act it was. It was just magical. It really was. I don't know how else to say it. I never saw so many happy, happy people. I mean, the people in line that had slept there and everything, they were just so happy. It felt like San Francisco is once again showing the nation what we should be and how our better angels should be operating. It didn't feel like there was anyone in the city that wasn't completely over the moon about what was happening. There was this illusion that homophobia had ended. to be told the happiest day of your life, null and void and of no legal effect. It's, it's pretty final. <laughs> I just burst out crying. You know, what's, yeah. what's left to do? On August 12th, 2004, exactly six months after Phyllis and Dell were declared spouses for life, the California Supreme Court ruled that Mayor Newsom had overstepped his authority and declared all 4,037 marriage licenses issued to same-sex couples null and void. It was a terrible moment, obviously. Yeah, it was devastating. We were once again being thrown back into inequality. And so to be consigned back to not married, you know, not for you, it's, uh, it wasn't completely unexpected for us. We still felt it. We felt it very strongly. I was driving on the freeway when I heard on the radio that the Supreme Court had nulled, annulled or whatever it was, all of our marriages. I burst into tears. And I, I had to pull my car off and I wept. It was such grief. And I got phone calls from straight friends that night, the way you get phone calls when somebody dies. I remember it was just, it was a profoundly emotional experience of discrimination. It just hit me in a different place. I mean, I have had scary looking guys in trucks yell fucking dyke at me. I mean, I, it's not that I haven't experienced homophobia or lesbophobia, whatever you want to call it, but I had never so quickly been swept up into this kind of social movement moment personally put, you know, been part of this kind of wonderful, magical day. I did it for political reasons, right? Civil disobedience, I want to be part of history. Intellectually, I knew that this was not going to last legally, but it didn't penetrate. It didn't matter what my head said. My heart got engaged. I mean, I cried more over that, or I cried as much over, over the loss of that 
privilege and the discrimination to the heart, to the deepest heart, it was, it was really something else, and it shocked the hell out of me. When it comes to issues like abortion and access to birth control, people often talk about the personal becoming political. But in this case, the opposite happened. The political became personal. After the marriages were voided, years of political drama ensued. There was legislative back and forth, including the controversial Proposition 8, which voters narrowly passed. It added an amendment to the state constitution that stated only heterosexual marriage was valid in California. A few years later, a federal court ruled Prop 8 unconstitutional. And in 2012, California legalized same-sex marriage once and for all. Then, last year, the Supreme Court ruled all bans on same-sex marriage unconstitutional. Gay marriage was finally legal in all 50 states. The day the ruling was announced, people in San Francisco flooded the streets in celebration. Kate Kendall with the National Center for Lesbian Rights. And <laughs> fuck you, Prop 8. <laughs> because we, we have lived for too many years under that stigmatizing piece of crap that diminished us and that eliminated our right to marry and that made us feel less than. But I'll tell you something, when Prop 8 passed, you stepped up and galvanized in a way that made today possible. This is why we're here. For John, it didn't take long for the reality of gay marriage to sink in. I'm married. And I'm married just as much as anybody else is. And I'm never relinquishing that. And it's profound to just be able to look anybody in the eye and start to not even think that my ability to be married was ever up for grabs. Many of the people I spoke with were skeptical of the institution of marriage before getting married themselves. Here's Kate Kendall from the National Center for Lesbian Rights. I had a pretty critical critique of marriage as unfair to women, not egalitarian in the way it should be. I now want to take everything back and be like, okay, I was totally wrong. It's an amazing experience. Tori Osborne says, as a gay rights activist, marriage was never her issue. And suddenly we saw why it was so important. It was like being part of a club. We suddenly were members of a club. It was the common language with straight people. Ellen Pontak says sharing that common language changed the ways in which she related to others. One of the things about marriage is that it's recognized around the world. It gives you a different place. And I remember, I mean, for years, uh, there's this young man who was always Shelley's brother's son. And one day, he became my nephew. I mean, it, it just changes the dynamic in a way that people understand and see things. John echoes this idea. I know at one point, Stuart's mother had a big family reunion, and she decided she would introduce me as, this is John, who is a member of our family. Like, 
did you adopt him? Or like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> but now, Stuart's parents have another option. They can say, this is my son, and this is my son-in-law. Despite my childhood enthusiasm, over the years, I'd become pretty skeptical of marriage. I mean, half of all marriages end in divorce. But after talking with John and Stuart and the other couples, my excitement started to rekindle. I realized that marriage doesn't have to mean just one thing, and it can look more than one way. And besides, if so many people fought this hard to be able to marry, then maybe my three-year-old self was right. It must be worth giving a try. For Life of the Law, I'm Aviva de Kornfeld. Winter of Love was reported and produced by Aviva de Kornfeld and edited by Ibi Caputo with sound design and production assistance from Jonathan Hirsch. We want to thank Aura de Kornfeld, Aviva's sister and an independent documentary filmmaker, Kevin Moffat, professor of creative writing at Claremont McKenna College, and Life of the Law's Kirsten Jesuits Heidel for their production support. Music by Blue Dot Sessions, Pottington Bear, and Lowercase Noises. Howard Gelman was our engineer. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune in to Life of the Law on iTunes. We tell stories about the law like it is. Stories about block bosses who give out hugs and slugs, attorneys with 1-800 numbers and ads on TV at 3 a.m., and lawyers negotiating ownership of mineral rights on asteroids. Take a few minutes to post your review of Life of the Law on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters and reviews of plays, books, and movies. You can subscribe at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the panoply network of podcasts from Slate, connecting sophisticated listeners with top publishers and thinkers. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, the Proteus Fund, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct costs of producing our episodes. It just takes a minute. Next on Life of the Law. There really are two systems of justice. There's one for people who can make bail and one for people who can't. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.